Father God, Lord, thank you for thank you for the, this day, God. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, just come fill me afresh, God. Give me the words to say. Lord, I pray for each and every single person here. You know where each person's at. Lord, I just pray that you'd speak right into our hearts today. Lord, I pray that you would take us to a different place, God, that we've entered here on one level, but that we'd leave in another. Lord, that we'd leave challenged but exalted, knowing just how awesome you are and how much you're for us, God. Lord, I pray that today isn't just a religious experience, God, but it's a relational experience with you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you for each and every life here and the lives that each life here touches and the power and the impact each of us can have in the world. In your great and awesome name. Amen. Amen. Great. So, guys, we're actually in a series called Acts at the moment. And today is a story about an ordinary man who lived an extraordinary life and what his secret was. Today is about Stephen. So we're looking at Stephen today. And the, the kind of core text we're going to be looking at, if you've got your Bibles, is we'll start in Acts 6. But Stephen is this normal first century Hellenistic Jew. Okay? We, we spoke a little bit about that last time. And he, he's probably quite a new believer. He's someone maybe has been a believer 18 months, 36 months. If you think about it, Jesus' ministry has only been going maybe about five years. Or five year, about five years before, less than that, Jesus kicked off his ministry. So the question is, what is it that made this normal man so extraordinary? This guy who only holds a small section of scripture has people named after him. That, you know, nowadays we call our kid Stephen and we call our dog food Caesar and things like that. Well, the, this guy who's got buildings and organizations named after him. What was it that made this normal guy who was running the church food programming, the social action of the church, what made him so incredible that an opposition rose up against him and wanted to silence him? So guys, we're going to go through the text, and it's a long text, because it's 6, 8 to 7.59. We're not going to read it all, okay? I'm going to paraphrase a, a central section of it, but we'll read a chunk at the beginning and a chunk at the end. So if you start in 6, 8, and then we're going to be going through to 7.59, okay? It says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs amongst the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they would not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then we have this big section through the middle where Stephen lectures these guys, and he t speaks to them and gives them this kind of rundown of their history, right from Abraham through to the exile to Babylon. And he's speaking to them and pointing towards Jesus, pointing towards, yeah, pointing towards Jesus. And then he ends 
very powerfully, very strongly, and he says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. Everything that he's just explained to them. You are just like your ancestors. You, are, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he'd said this, he fell asleep. So a long passage, a long story. It's his story, really. It's the story of Stephen. And what I want to do today, guys, is look into the context of that passage so that you guys understand it better, so that we kind of see what's going on for Stephen at that time and, so, and explain some of the things that are going on. And then look, in light of that, oh, four things that Stephen does, four things that he does that can encourage us today, that can challenge us today. So this passage of scripture, a couple of weeks ago, before Easter, we were looking at the appointing of the seven guys, and Stephen is one of these seven guys that's appointed to look after the food distribution, money distribution of the early church, of these Hellenistic widows that are being overlooked. And one thing that we notice there is that Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew, because all those seven, they have Greek names that are given to them. And so a Hellenistic Jew is a Jew from Israel, but that's living outside of Israel, most likely, or from outside of Israel, where the main language spoken is Greek. And so if we, if we kind of look at what's going on there, Stephen's going around and he's part of synagogues, because I mean, they're Jews, he's part of synagogues. Remember, Paul went to synagogues too, didn't he? And speaking in these Hellenistic synagogues. And that's why he comes into contact with these guys, the synagogue of the freedmen. These freedmen were likely freed slaves that had been descendants of slaves that had been taken in BC 63 by, the, by Pompey, the... Uh, he was like a Roman general who came in, and it's from that point that Israel becomes this client kingdom to Rome. And it says, doesn't it, that they're from these four places, city of Alexandria, city of Cyrene, and then the province of Cilicia, and also the province of Asia. Cyrene and Alexandria, they're cities, okay? So if this is Jerusalem, by the way, this stop here. So here is Cyrene in modern day Libya. Here is Alexandria. That one of the great seats of Hellenistic Christianity. It's a great Hellenist city named after Alexander the Great himself. And then we have here, we have the province of Asia. So when you're reading the Bible, Asia, it's not talking about Hong Kong, you know, it's talking about this area of Turkey. It's kind of Western Turkey. And then um, it also says Cilicia, which is this province just here in the kind of crook of Turkey itself. 
So these guys that he's arguing against are from these areas. They're not just normal guys. They're very passionate, devout Jews. That's what's happening is Stephen's going out, he's doing signs and wonders. He's explaining them, he's preaching the gospel. He's sharing the gospel with people. He's bringing this new revelation, this new teaching, grace and all the other things you can imagine, you know, the gospel. And these guys is challenging them and they're standing up to it and they're debating with him and they just cannot stand up to the wisdom that he's speaking with. But to see who Stephen is speaking with, if you look at Jewish society, Jewish culture, they would, as boys, everyone would go to synagogue school. So they'd go into synagogue school and then they'd every year do kind of the tests. And if they passed, they stayed in synagogue school. And if you do super well, you stay all the way through until you become a disciple of a rabbi. If you failed, you would end up being kicked out and you would end up going back to your family business, be, you know, whatever your family used to be. Stephen is part of this group who wasn't, this group who wasn't good enough. He's, he's one of the ones who is not clever enough, maybe failed somewhere along the way. These guys he's speaking to aren't just anyone from the synagogue. They're very educated men who very likely are contemporaries of Paul. And we know how incredibly intelligent Paul is. They're, they could be Paul's a disciple and they're a disciple as well. That they're, they're kind, They are complete contemporaries. And the way we can kind of come to that and see that within this context is Paul's actually involved. Remember at the end of the passage, it says Paul's there as he's being stoned. They lay the cloth or their clothes at his feet whilst they stone this guy. And then also, does anyone remember where Paul's from? Saul of Tarsus. Saul's from Tarsus. Tarsus is this city just here in the province of Cilicia. So these guys are speaking about very likely people, is Paul himself and other people who know Paul and are contemporaries of him. And then lastly, in the end of Acts, it says Acts 22, 3, it's Paul speaking about how he sat under, in the, under the feet, he, sat, he was trod on. He sat on the feet of Gamaliel. It means he was Gamaliel's disciple. Now, who's Gamaliel? We bumped into him a few chapters back where Peter and John brought into prison or brought into the court and Gamaliel's there and he's the one that says, let's just let them get on with it in case we find ourselves fighting against God because these other rebellions that started, you know, they just, they kind of frittered away. Gamaliel is one of the most famous Jewish rabbis and also at this time, he is the leader of the Sanhedrin, which is the very place that these guys, probably Paul being one of them, take them to the rabbi, take them to the Sanhedrin. So these guys aren't just any guys, they're students of the law being out-debated by a common guy. You know, they just can't take it. And whatever's going on in each of their hearts, maybe it's pride and anger, all these things that trying to defend their kind of beloved law in that, they end up in their zeal breaking their law. So what's one of the laws? Don't bear false witness against anybody, you know, and they get someone to bear false witness. And so they bring Stephen in before the Sanhedrin. If you think about it, Stephen was either saying something that was so good, he was saying what they said, you know, saying about destroying the practices of Moses and speaking against this holy place. Either Stephen was saying that, it's just what, the, what he was saying and the way he was saying it, everyone loved it, so no one would testify. Or, and I think probably most likely, he wasn't really saying that. There was something far deeper that these guys just couldn't hack it. 
And so they have to get people to bear a false witness to say that's what's being said. And so what is really at the core of it, what's going on here, what's going on in the hearts of these, these guys, the synagogue of the free men? Ultimately, they're not seeking God. They're seeking to maintain something that God wants to make even better. Because Jesus never said he wanted to destroy what had happened, but fulfill it, right? That he wants to take them to someplace even better. That these guys, they're not seeking God and what he's doing in that moment, but they're seeking to maintain something that God wants to make better. They don't, they don't see what God is doing there and then, because they're not looking for it. And a challenge for us as we're just cruising through the talk today is, are there places in your life where God wants to take you to a higher place, a different place, but you're not looking at him? Instead, you're maybe focused on the fear of change. You're focused on the thing that God has given you and you don't want to let go of that thing. But is there a place that God wants to take you to something even better? How do we know these guys, okay, that they're not trying to kill him because they're not trying to kill him how do we know they're not trying to kill him but they are trying to silence this new teaching well we know they're not trying to kill the guy because they take him to the Sanhedrin the Sanhedrin they do not have any power to execute people that had been taken away about 30 years before by the Romans that's why when Jesus is executed they want to kill him don't they that's why when Jesus is executed they don't execute they can't execute him they don't have powers to they even say to Pilate, you know, we're not allowed to execute him. That's why they take him to Pilate. So why do they take him to the Sanhedrin? Well, the Sanhedrin had a bunch of powers. One of the powers they have is this power called harem. And the power of harem, it means it's a mode of secluding and rendering harmless anything imperiling the religious life of the nation. Now in the past, outside Roman rule, that could have been killing as well but not in, this, not in this time, not in this setting, not in this context. It's, do you remember where God kind of speaks about going to this place and like etch a sketch, end of the world kind of it? You know, those kind of ones where it's just like, leave nobody alive. That's the harem thing. Don't let any sin remain in the land. These guys, they're trying to silence the gospel. Get Stephen locked up or shut up, locked down, because they had the power to do that, to silence him. In their blindness here, they're trying to quench the thing that God is doing for fear of losing what God had already done. You know, all that stuff, their history and culture, God had done that. It didn't come from anywhere else. God had set those things in place and they were afraid of the change. Do we miss what God wants to do because we're afraid of letting go of what God has already done? I remember end of last year, I live streamed into the Destiny International Leaders Day back in Glasgow. And um, Andrew Owen, who oversees the whole sort of Destiny Global Network, he, um, he, said, he said this stuff which I really appreciate. He said, about 30 odd years ago when we started, we were new, you know, we were cutting edge. We were kind of pushing things forward, seeking things for this generation, bringing transformation. And he said, but we're not the new kids on the block anymore. We've been around for a while. We need to be seeking God's face and seeking what he's doing in this time, in this generation. So we stay relevant and current to the people that need to hear things today. Because, I mean, that's the thing sometimes with church, isn't it? 
that sometimes church is breakthrough and incredible, but then stays there, but God continues and moves on. So I really appreciate that from kind of, from one of my leaders, to have that kind of vision and mindset. These men, they're not desiring Jesus. They're not pursuing God. There's this kind of religious culture that's there. I mean, God put it in place, didn't he? All, all the stuff that he gives Moses and all these things, they wouldn't have had it without God. There's this religious culture that they're fighting for and anything that opposes it, they're trying to quench and crush, but actually they're not thinking, are they fighting against God in this? And, you know, we may look at that today and think, you know, that's old school. Yeah, those kind of things happened in the olden times. But actually, the same could be said for someone living in a modern, relevant, secular culture today. You, that thing of often people say, you know, you've got to be open-minded. And everyone's very okay to be open-minded until it comes to God, when actually maybe a lot of people are very closed-minded when it comes to God, because it challenges their culture. It challenges what maybe only just for their lifetime, for 14 years, for maybe 50 years, has been a cultural norm but was very different for their great-grandparents' generation. So Stephen here, he gets taken into the Sanhedrin. Stephen, this Jewish law failure, this complete mess up. He'd messed up. He'd dropped out of the synagogue schools. He would have been whatever his business was, his family business. We don't know that. But he gets up and he lectures the Sanhedrin on the law and the prophets. You know, it's if you think about the situation there, that's crazy. You know, that's like me going to Parliament and lecturing them on how to be politicians. I don't know how to do that. These guys, they've pulled Stephen in there because they want to stop him. They, in their own minds, they're trying to defend this religious life, that harem, this religious life of the nation, defending the law, keeping the law, maintaining the law, and ultimately, they're pursuing this law in their blindness and not the grace that God is bringing. But look at this, in their efforts to pursue the law, what happens? What happens with anybody who tries to pursue the law and not pursue God's grace? Exactly what Stephen says to them, exactly what he says. He says, you have received the law that was given through angels. You know, this has come from God. This isn't a messed up law. This is a perfect, holy, awesome, divine law, but have not obeyed it. See, they break the law and they're trying to keep it. They break it. It's what Jesus kept telling everyone about. They're pursuing the law instead of God. And in doing so, they fail and they break the law. Today, are we pursuing to be good people? You know, have we grown up in that culture that says, well, if you're good, you do some nice stuff and you, you try and be a good person, then you get to go to heaven. Or are we pursuing Jesus? Are we pursuing him? This whole story of Stephen is this incredible, like, it's like a microcosm of the gospel because Stephen, in some senses, is like a picture of Christ. Or Christ is the perfect Stephen. If you think that Stephen here, Stephen is the innocent and blameless one. These guys, they're the ones who break the law. But who's the one who ends up? being killed 
Stephen ends up being killed. This most holy body, this, the Sanhedrin, who should be in charge of the security of the nation, the righteousness of the nation, all these kind of things, justice, preservation of religious life. They, like a mob, grab Stephen in the end, don't they? Take him out and they murder him. They didn't have the right to do that. They had no authority to do that. That's the sin. That's the sin. Stephen right at the end says, forgive them of it. The breaking of law, this murder. And Stephen, we can see how much he's looking at Christ because at the end, do you remember when Christ died? He said, Father, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And Stephen, as he dies, says, do not hold this sin against them. So this is kind of an overview of the story, in a sense, some of the cultural background that's going on. Because I want you guys to think of Stephen, and now we're going to begin putting ourselves in Stephen's shoes about how he lived this extraordinary life, that he's in this context where everyone's saying, you're trying to change our very way of life. You're trying to change our whole worldview. He's in an environment here of great hostility. He's in an, in an environment where in the natural, in his own ability, who he is, he is very weak. He should not be the one standing up lecturing these scholars on law and the prophets and theology. What was it that made this normal Christian, this guy who didn't even have a title as a Christian, they hadn't even invented that title at that point, they were just called followers of Jesus or people of the way. This guy who discovered something, what was it that made him so mighty? So here's the key point, guys. He desired him above all else. Stephen desired Jesus. Stephen desired Jesus. He pursued him above everything else. Because he was pursuing him above everything else, that led to him being full of grace and the Spirit. Remember that? That's how it starts. All of this kicks off by saying he was full of grace and the Spirit. If that sentence wasn't there, the rest of that stuff wouldn't be there. This is a man pursuing God. He's full of grace because he has experienced abundant grace being poured out upon him. And as he's filled up with that grace, as that revelation of God's abundant grace in his life manifests, that flows out of him and it impacts everybody around him. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit. I think Stephen's a great example of someone full of the Holy Spirit because he's just a normal guy. You know, sometimes people can be like, okay, well, that guy, John, Peter, they hung out with Jesus. You know, Jesus touched them once and the, they were apostles and they did this. And sometimes people get head up about that, even though that isn't true. You know, even those guys say it's not in our power or might or anything to do with us that we do these things, but only because of him. But this Stephen, he's just a normal guy, and yet he desires Jesus. He is pursuing Jesus, and it's through the Holy Spirit that we have intimacy with Jesus. It's through the Holy Spirit that we have relationship with Jesus. That's that amazing, beautiful mystery of the Trinity where Jesus and the Holy Spirit are so individual that Jesus is in heaven right now, okay? It's not that, okay, I'm coming again, it's be my spirit that's here but also they're so together that he is also right here with us right now in this room, with us in worship. 
it's through that spirit that we have relationship with Jesus. Pursuing Jesus means being full of the Holy Spirit. So someone not pursuing Jesus isn't going to be full of grace and the Holy Spirit. He's just this awesome guy, Stephen, with a powerful and beautiful ministry. Why? Is it because he's so awesome? Because he's so great and charismatic? Because he's so intelligent? No. It's because he's realized and discovered Jesus, who is awesome. Because he's been filled with the Holy Spirit, who is absolutely magnificent. See, this is what today is about, guys. This is what the challenge is today is, are we pursuing him? Will we pursue him? It's about laying down ourselves, our stuff that we've got. Um, maybe our ministries, because you know, it's don't, you don't have to be in ministry to have a ministry. But everything that we're trying to do, laying that down and focusing on him, living for him, remembering that it is in him that we have every good and perfect thing. So Stephen lives this life, life desiring Jesus. He pursues this life in the spirit, not to have some awesome ministry, not because he wants to be seen as this big, like, I'm a supernatural guy and I kind of go around and heal people and do this stuff. You know, I don't even think, I don't even think he does it out of a deep love to see loads of people healed. That's there, but I think the primary reason is that he's pursuing Jesus and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he's in that place, from that place flows, I just want to heal these people. I want to see the gospel preached. I can't do it myself. No, but the Holy Spirit can empower us to live like that. So you can't stand in the presence of Jesus and not have that grace flow from your life. And so Stephen does these four things to challenge us today in our lives, in our settings, in our environments, in our situations. Firstly, he took risks. Signs and wonders take risks, you know? Stephen obeys that great commission. Go out, heal the sick. I don't know the details of all the different things, but he didn't just distribute food. He didn't just run a logistics program for the church. I love, though, how that most practical guy, the most practical job, sees incredible supernatural stuff in his ministry. And that's how he ends up connecting with this synagogue of the freed men. He's living a lifestyle of risk, trusting God, going out, sharing. Think about signs and wonders. <clears throat> we don't know what happened exactly, but whatever happened must have been significant. You know, not some back room, a few healings, no one really speaks about it. There must have been some pretty big stuff to have been going on, to be noted down, to raise to raise people to come out, to speak to him, to debate with him. Stephen was seeing the kingdom come. So signs and wonders as well are things which signpost Jesus. They point towards Jesus. Why do we take risks? Why do we do these things? Is it because oh, I'm going to take a risk that this is going to happen and everyone's going to think, whoa, that's awesome. Well done. You know, well done for like praying and healing that guy. Why do we take risks? Because it points to Jesus. I love how his ministry is all about pointing towards Jesus. So your, your job, guys, isn't 
to point people towards church, although that's okay, and people come here, and then over time they get pointed to Jesus, but make your priority to point people towards Jesus. And when they come to Jesus, they'll want to connect with a church. See, we, we need to know when, when we pray for signs and wonders, when we pray for healing the sick, when we pray for whatever it is, incredible things, that it isn't about you. It's about Jesus getting the glory. It's about that person encountering God. And do you know what? It, the Holy Spirit is all about praising the name of Jesus, all about creating situations where people will look at God and be like, wow, that's amazing. So he focused on Jesus and he took risks. Number two, he spoke. He preached the gospel. He demonstrates the gospel with signs and wonders, and then he explains the gospel to people. And then people come and challenge him, and he speaks to them and debates with them. See, I'm thinking guys around him, people around him, they got saved. He spoke the truth, and I love how he's not reliant on his own ability. He spoke the truth, and as he spoke, the Spirit gave him the wisdom to speak. He was debated and had these debates with some of the brightest theological minds in Jerusalem at the time, these young firebrands of theology. And he ran circles around these guys, so much so that he was ended up, it wasn't just, okay, well, he doesn't really know what he's talking about, so, so much so that he's brought before the Sanhedrin. See, interestingly, it says that as he spoke, he was given wisdom, or he was given wisdom as he spoke. He had the choice to start speaking. It wasn't like the Holy Spirit just kind of came and possessed him, and he said a load of stuff and woke up in a ditch like half an hour later, you know, and a load of people saved. He had the choice to start speaking, and that's a challenge for us today. We start, and the Holy Spirit will give us the words. See, God's not going to take over. We've got to choose to start, and he will come, and he'll fill in the blanks. I think if you want a phrase for this and many other things that we're afraid to start because we don't have the ability, is that God will meet us in our weakness. But first, we've got to step on the playing field. We open our mouths. We speak. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit comes and meets us in our weakness, gives us the words. And you know, guys, speak, because you never know the situation someone's in. If you feel called to speak to someone, and especially if you feel, oh, I should speak, I'm too scared to speak, definitely speak. You know, that's the time when the Holy Spirit's like, you really need to speak right now. You know, Speak, because your words may save someone's life. Choose to speak, choose to share. They may be crying out for something that you have, that you are embarrassed to say, embarrassed to share but it could transform the direction of their entire lives it's like a starving person it's hard because we can't see it with our eyes sometimes it's like a starving person sat right there and i am too afraid to go and give them bread because i'm in, a bit embarrassed about starting a conversation with them you know i'm sure that person would much rather i be a little bit embarrassed and they don't die do we fear to open our mouths? And guys, if you fear that, the a bit of advice is let your motive always be love. Not trying to convince them into something. Let your motive be love. Speak from this place of pursuing Jesus. 
because that's the best place, because that's a place of love and a place of ease. It's not about forcing them to try and be a Christian or try and believe in Jesus. It is in love sharing with these guys this amazing love that you're experiencing and in kind of bringing them into that. Okay. Thirdly, what does he do? He walked in boldness. What's the thing that he does that we can see from that? He speaks again, doesn't he? He's arrested and then he's taken to the San- Sanhedrin. So he's like debated some of these kind of young firebrand guys. They set it all up to get him into the Sanhedrin. And then there you've kind of got the big guns. You've got Gamaliel, Gamaliel and all these guys. And, you know, at that point, so how many people taking that kind of picture on your life would be like, oh, yeah, no, like, I'm sorry if I've kind of ruffled some feathers. You know, I'm just going to, I'll kind of calm down for a little bit. We'll just hold the meeting in our house. I won't do anything on the street. You know, that kind of thing. How easy would it be? But he doesn't. He speaks again. And he speaks and he preaches to the Sanhedrin. And what I love is he never defends himself. He never speaks about the reason that they brought him in there. He doesn't waste any time giving an account of why it's okay. He never speaks about himself at all. He doesn't worry about himself. He keeps focused on the grand story that he had been speaking to people, that he then goes back and tells these guys again. He keeps focused on this grand story of what God had done, what God is doing today, and what God is doing in the world. So he doesn't try to defend, but he just pronounces the truth. He lifts up Jesus and he remains focused on him. Where's his boldness coming from? It's from God himself. It's the Holy Spirit that as we step out, we're not just given the words, but we're given the boldness. The Holy Spirit meets us in that place of weakness. And it ends with everyone else on trial. If you kind of read it, it's like, they start and they're like, they put him on trial. And then it ends with everyone else on trial. God can turn situations around like you'd never, ever imagined. He focused on boldness and in him, sorry, he focused on Jesus and in him finds boldness. And point four, what does he do? Is the last point, he looked and he saw. Remember, he says, look, I see heaven opened and the son of man seated at the right hand of the Father. He saw heaven. He saw Jesus. And guys, I want to encourage you today to be people who are so focused on Jesus, who are so focused on him, that we see the unseen in our worlds, in our situations, that we can go into those places. And even, let's talk about evangelism, even when we're looking at people and they seem fine, we see the hidden things. We see what God is doing in our world, doing in our city. We see that which is unseen, but also we are focused on him. We're focused on Jesus above everything else. See, it was seeing Jesus and he says, look, the son of man, no one else had ever used that and doesn't use it again in scripture, apart from Jesus himself, the son of man, and everyone rushes him. That's what causes them. They rush forward. The Sanhedrin is not focused on Jesus, and so they're spiritually blind. They don't see the truth that Stephen sees right in front of them. If they could see the truth, then they would have rejoiced. They would have completely rejoiced. They would have seen the defeat of death. They would have seen the glory of God. 
They would have seen the hope for all mankind. If you think what Stephen's looking at is actually the throne room of heaven, which throughout all Jewish kind of culture and history, the tabernacle was this kind of picture of the throne room of heaven here upon the earth. Well, if they see that, they just see this amazing fulfillment of their whole history, everything that Stephen is speaking about, not getting rid of anything of, that Moses has brought, not getting rid of their customs, but taking them to a far more amazing place. If their eyes were on Jesus, they would have rejoiced because they would have realized that their sin, their sin had been completely paid for, but they can't see. They don't see Jesus. These guys, they're focused on fear, which then leads them to anger, which when, then leads them to sin, which then leads them to death. And this picture here, for us as church, as individuals, as Christians, it's a beautiful moment. Because even though he, Stephen, ends up dead, Jesus himself in that moment, he is normally He's normally not standing, right? So every, every time Jesus is pictured, he's seated. But in this moment, he stands. And uh, so many people maybe have an image of God as this kind of uncaring God, but God cares so much. And he's so interested in every single one of your lives. Jesus stands. You see, when we proclaim him, when we put everything on the line for him, when our focus switches from this stuff to him, Heaven stands, the king stands, and the king sees. And it's in the same way that we live our lives today, focusing on that which is unseen. It's also to remember that throughout all our trials, because we have trials, Christianity, becoming a Christian, following Jesus, never means you've got an easy life. Doesn't mean that, right? So we will have trials. But throughout all your trials, all your challenges, remember, you are seen. No matter your situation, God sees you and he loves you. Stephen, in that moment, could have seen so much. He could have seen the anger on people's faces. He could have seen the hate that was in the room. He could have seen, seen the gnashing teeth, probably banging fists. But he was fixated on Jesus. He is fixated on Jesus. What are you fixated on? What is more real to you than anything else? And I encourage you guys today, pursue Jesus. Look at what he wants to reveal to you. Because can you imagine a church of Stephens? Normal, everyday people, focused on him, taking risks, seeing God do incredible things out there not just after church service, but out there in our businesses and our families and our workplaces and the streets, just in everyday life, taking risks, speaking out, sharing, being bold, and seeing that which is unseen. Remember, Jesus always said, I don't do what I, like, I, I only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus saw the unseen and we're called to be like Jesus and walk as people seeing the unseen. And guys, that's my hope for us. That's my hope for Destiny Church. That's my hope for all churches in Hong Kong, that we will grow into being one of these kinds of churches, that we will bless the city in a way that we'd never dreamed before. You know, churches made up of individuals that are focused on him first, above everything else, above everything else, 
focused and pursuing Jesus will transform a city. In uh, spoke, there's this quote um, says this, or it's a quote, it's a review. It says of a church in Spokane, um, Washington State, and it says between 1915 and 1920, in the healing rooms in the Rookery Building in Spokane, Washington, there were over a hundred thousand in five years, a hundred thousand documented healings, which led to the city being named the healthiest city in the U.S. That's John G. Lake's church when he did that. If you don't know John G. Lake, look him up. Amazing guy, amazing, amazing pastor. But their focus there in that place in that city. Their focus was on Christ, and it transformed the city. So as church, we can easily let the focus, as much as we love Jesus, can let the focus switch, and we can let the focus be maybe on the worry of our current situation, our job, our career, our future, the stuff that we've got going on in life. It can, and I'll speak to myself a big style in this, I can easily be that our focus switches from Jesus to church. So it becomes all about church and church building programs and church programs and all these kind of things. We're as great and awesome and as such a blessing as they are. But you know, actually the best thing for church in amongst all of that, the primary thing is that we focus and are fixated on Jesus. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. And to the church, he's called us to live focused on him and desiring him. Remember it says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. But it's very difficult to seek his kingdom unless you seek the king of the kingdom. You must seek the king. I can't seek his righteousness without focusing on him, the righteous one, the one from whom we have righteousness, the savior. Focus on Jesus. Desire Jesus above all else. And that will impact every area of your life. What would the world look like with a people pursuing Jesus? What would the world look like? Imagine the beauty and the honor of our workplaces and our industries where we're focused on Jesus first. Imagine the peace and the joy and the strength in family life and relationships where Jesus is the focus. So it's hard, guys. It's hard to describe really the impact and the beauty of what that would look like with a kingdom focus, with a gospel-centered society. But I just know to start in the 21st century, the church in Hong Kong needs to be like Stephen, Israel of the first century, and above all else, desire and pursue him. So we're going to end there. We're going to do a worship song and actually have a time of response at the end. Um, so we'll just have some music at the end. And I, the, chant, the questions, I just want you guys to think to yourselves as we go into this last song is, are you here today and you aren't pursuing him? You just know you're not pursuing him. Maybe you'd say he's not your God. You're not chasing after him. You want to make him God. Is there some place in your life where you need to stop focusing on the problem but actually turn and focus on Jesus and just bring the problem into that because suddenly that comes all into perspective and as well guys do you need even if you are a believer 
do you need just to say today, okay, I just want to focus afresh on you. Lay this stuff down. So we're going to, I'm just going to pray. We're going to end and then, um, and then, and then we're going to worship. Father God, Lord, I thank you for today. God, I pray these, this word, Lord, in different ways has impacted us. God, Lord, I pray that you would build us up and encourage us. Lord, I thank you, God, that we have the privilege of life with you, the privilege of pursuing you, God, the privilege, God, of being brothers and sisters together in love and in unity and in community, God, seeking your heart first, God. Lord, I pray that if there's anything not clear today, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would make it clear in our hearts, Lord, and I just pray peace over every single one of us. In your great and awesome name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.